This evening in verse number 27, we're going to look at verses 27 down through verse number 33 as the king faces the cross. Just a reminder to kind of get our minds back rolling on where we have already been. Back in uh, the beginning of chapter 12, we saw the proper time. The proper time had come. We noted that numerous times throughout Jesus's ministry, times would come where he would kind of ease out of the scene. And it was he was doing that because it was not yet time. And so we considered the proper time being fulfilled in Daniel chapter number nine, where the Bible tells us the anointed one would be cut off. And that indeed was referring to Christ at his week at the Passion Week that we will observe. The second thing we notice in chapter 12 is not only the proper time, but we also saw the passionate people. We saw the prophetic fulfillment. We saw the perplexed disciples. We saw the pondering Pharisees. We saw the plea of the Gentiles. And we saw the purpose or the provision of the Savior. Now, those are the headings I have given you in regards to all the way down to verse 26. And I want to begin this evening, as we have already read from these verses we will be considering, that of all the truths of the Christian faith, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection are the most important. And they're the most precious. Had he not died, there would be no substitute for sin. Had he not been our substitute, there would be no offer of salvation. Uh, Were there no salvation, there would be no hope. And if there were no hope, then there would be no future, but only that of hell. The Christian faith, as we would all agree, centers on the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. That is where our foundation lies. And the glorious truth that Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, came to this earth and died as a sacrifice for sin is the heart of God's redemptive plan. It's also the heart of the Christian message. The Bible teaches us that the death of Christ, this redemptive plan, was not God's plan B. This is not God's, uh-oh, I've got to come up with something to do. This is, God's never had a uh-oh, okay? Uh, I heard one preacher say one time, before you and I had a problem, God had a plan. And that indeed is true. Jesus has always been the plan, and he will always be the focus of the redemptive plan of God. Peter tells us that this plan of redemption was one that God had predetermined beforehand a long time ago. He said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, He, referring to Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but what was revealed in these last times for you. Brothers and sisters, from the start of the Scripture to the last of the Scripture, the emphasis is placed in its crucial significance on the, Christ, uh, on the cross of Christ. He was our offering for sin that propitiated, or if you'd like better, just simply satisfied the wrath of God in our place. His death was a substitutionary death. His death was one that satisfied the wrath of God on behalf of all those who would ever believe. Now we realize that Jesus' death was indeed the fulfillment of Daniel 9 verses 25 to 26 how the anointed one would be cut off. Indeed, we observe that. We also have learned in Zechariah, particularly Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, that Israel, excuse me, they will look upon him whom they have pierced. And as a result of that, we read Zechariah 13, 1, which says a fountain opens from the place of David and flows out 
to wash away sin and impurity. Wonder where the hymn writer got, there's a fountain flowing. Well, indeed, it flows from Emmanuel's veins. It flows from the one who laid his life down willingly, not as a victim, but willingly in obedience to his father's plan to save a people for himself. And Jesus offered his life's blood upon the cross. Jesus told his men this is how it was going to go. Luke chapter 18, the Bible says, Then he took the twelve aside and told them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked, insulted, and spit on. And after they flog him, they will kill him, and he will rise on the third day. They understood none of these things. (laughs) You know, he, he told it to them pretty straightforward. But again, they didn't understand it. And I, I don't want to, the older I get and the more I read the Bible over and over and over, you know, I just get to think, man, I got to stop being so judgmental or critical of these guys because in reality, don't we find ourselves often coming short of what God has told us to do? Or maybe something he's spoken to us through his word. And, you know, sometimes we scratch our head and we don't immediately get it that way. Sometimes things take time because we're all in different <laughs> levels of our intellect and growing and comprehension. So we got to be careful. These guys You know, and again, I know this has to do with the spirit not yet being poured out on. I I get that. But a lot of times, too, I I just realized they were just common, ordinary fishermen. And a lot of these things were just hard for them to get. And Jesus, for them, in the mind of their own, thinking about their Lord being crucified and handed over to Gentiles to be treated like a criminal was just unthought of. They couldn't imagine. But the Bible is filled with these predictions. Peter said in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is the same Spirit that raises you and I from our spiritual death and will one day raise us again to life and newness of bo- and a new body, glorified, made like Christ. Well, as we think about our passage tonight, I want us to think, first of all, at verses 27 to 28, I want us to see the son's anguish, the son's anguish. Notice verse 27 and 28. Now is my soul troubled. Boy, a transition happens in the life of Christ in this time of discussion. He said his soul is troubled. You know, that word troubled there is the same word that we will eventually see in John chapter 14, verse 1 where he said to his disciples around the table in the upper room that night, let not your hearts be troubled. It's the same word. It's interesting that Jesus didn't tell us not to do something until he first conquered it. But he conquered being troubled. And what does it mean to be troubled? This word troubled simply means to shake up, to stir up, to be disturbed, to be upset, to be horrified. And I'm sure if we went around the room tonight, you know, uh, certainly there's not many of us that wouldn't take that much time. (laughs) If we went around the room tonight to ask, um, you know, have you something in your life ever shaken you up or stirred you up? I think we would all probably say there's something we can recall in our life that really had an impact on us. We know what it means when Jesus says to be troubled. And I think oftentimes we read of Jesus and we just emphasize his deity rather than realizing the fact of his humanity. Jesus was not only truly God, but he was also truly man. And as a man, he had to learn to walk. He had to learn to read. He had to learn to talk. He had to learn his one, two, three, four, and fives. He had to learn his colors. He had to learn to write. He had to learn. 
He grew in wisdom and stature according to the scripture. And also he was faced with hunger. He was faced with thirst, sleepless nights, not even have a place to lay his head. There's so many observations we could discuss. Even as we mentioned this morning, the Bible says in Isaiah 53 that they looked at him and they called him a man of sorrows. In other words, he didn't look like anybody that they were attracted to. He never turned, they, they said they never did it really want to turn their attention to him, which is in direct contrast to the calling to be king of David and Saul. What was the, one of the main reasons that they elected Saul and David to be king? He looked good. Jesus, man of sorrow. They thought he was stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. But he wouldn't because of his sin. He was that way because of our sin. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. It didn't really hit me to the day. I was thinking about that uh, in between services. You know, we read that passage and maybe we often quote it, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. You know, I hadn't really thought about that word despising the shame much, but when I despise something, that means I hate something. So what did G there was joy in the life of Jesus as he made his way to the cross, but there was also a time or there was also a part of that that he just simply despised. He didn't like it. That almost sounds weird to say, don't it? He despised the shame. He despised the shame. And you say, well, what, what are we what are we talking about when it says he despises the shame? Well, we've got to ask the question, what caused Christ to experience anguish in his soul. And it's simply this, the anticipation of bearing our sin, experiencing wrath, being separated from the Father, caused Christ's soul to be troubled. Matthew Henry, one of the Puritan writers, he said it this way, the sin of our souls was the troubled of Christ's soul. The sin of our souls was the troubled of Christ's soul when he undertook to redeem and save us and to make his soul an offering for our sin. He became troubled. I'll tell you another passage you don't hear read much, but it's in the Bible. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. During his earthly life, he offered up prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. We don't think about that much, do we? We don't think about Jesus being truly a man quite often. But just in all of those things he encountered, the difference between him and you and me is he did it without sin. I want you to think of the sinlessness of Christ who just said he must die. I want you to go back, if you will, here in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. In other words, my soul is troubled. But what should I do? Hypothetical question. Should I just ask the Father to take this away and let me not go through it? He said, but it's for this very reason that I came. This is the very reason that I've come to this earth. 
You remember what we talked about this morning, back up what Jesus said in verse 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And then he told his disciples, you must do this. You must die to yourself in order to live to Christ. And then in direct contrast or comparison to what he just said, Jesus himself is faced with that in his life. You know how hard it is for you to give up the life of your own that you love? You know the only one that could do it? Jesus. He's the only one that could do it. He's the only one that could do what he did. The, the temptation there, and we've already saw him be tempted in the wilderness, and he overcame that. And now in verse 27, his soul is troubled. But he said, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. It's for the very purpose I came. I came to give my life. I came to be like a seed that you put in the ground when it's dead. And after it's dead, it brings forth much fruit. None of us are just going to willingly give our lives away. But Jesus Christ did. Jesus did. The Bible tells us in John 10, he said, This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down. I have the right to take it up. I've received the command from my Father. And let's not forget what he told Peter in Matthew chapter 26, verse 53. He says, Do you not think that I cannot call on my Father and He will provide me here and now with more than 12 legion of angels? Isn't there an old hymn he could have called 10,000 angels or something like that, but he, but he died alone? In other words, what does that mean? That means Jesus on the cross was not a victim. Jesus on the cross was not a victim, but rather on the cross, he was the victor. He could have called on his father to rescue him at any time, but he didn't. He willingly, lovingly, and mercifully went to the cross for his sheep. Christ would not stray from the redemptive plan that had been in place since the beginning. And that plan called on him to die as a sacrifice. On the cross, God's great love for sinners God's great wrath toward sin, God's perfect justice on sin, His redeeming grace, forgiving mercy, and infinite wisdom is clearly seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we see the Son's anguish. I want you to now see, secondly, in verses 28 to 30, I want you to see the Father's answer. Verse 28. The Bible said, then a, Father, glorify your name. Then he said, then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. It says in verse 29, the crowd stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. This is the third time in the Gospels that we see the voice of God speak from heaven. The first time we saw it was at Jesus' baptism, Matthew 3.17. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. The next time we saw it, Matthew 17, is it on the Mount of Transfiguration. Where they are gathered on top of the mountain, Jesus becomes transfigured, and the voice of God speaks and says, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And now the third time this comes to bring about again confirmation that the Father is affirming that this is the anointed one of God. This is him. He was glorified in his life, and now he will be glorified in his death. That is confirmed in John 17. 
Now the people standing around, they wondered what they heard. And I'm not going to lie. You know, how will we have responded? I, I don't know. But they compared it to thunder. And then one of them said, no, just an angel spoke to him. It's interesting to me the comparison they made is to thunder because anytime you read the voice of God being revealed in the Old Testament, what is it often associated with? Thunder. But also they said an angel maybe spoke this. But they didn't understand it. They didn't understand it. Now, you know, it's interesting here that they did not understand it, but my mind went immediately to the reality that we have before us in the Scripture. The crowd's inability to understand God's voice just simply illustrates what? The hardness of the heart. The Bible tells us that a natural man is deaf to the Word, blind to the Word, and cannot receive the Word of God without the aid of the Spirit of God doing work in one's heart. Some of them standing there were certainly strengthened by this. I would say that that was the disciples. But some of those standing by did have, had no clue whatsoever what was taking place. And the issue is not that God is silent, but that rather sinful people are deaf. That's the issue. God speaks. But unless the ears have been opened and the eyes have been made to see and the heart has been changed. A natural man cannot understand the things of God. Well, we see the son's anguish. We see the father's. Um, we see the, the father's approval here. And the, the third thing I want us to see this evening is the victory that was anticipated. Look at verse 30. to I'm sorry, verse 31 to 33. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. I love this little few verses here. And we've been speaking on it quite often in regards to our study on Wednesday night, we've been walking through 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we're presented with the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And in the Old Covenant, Paul said that they were blinded. And until one turns to Jesus, the veil is not removed. But when one does turn to Jesus, the veil is removed and they're able to gaze in the glory at the glory of Christ and not be blinded by it, but rather transformed by it. And then you get to chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. And the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, He said, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, here's the question. When it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the God of this age, some translations say the God of this world. And again, the word there is ion, which means age, the God of this age. And I've shared with you in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that there's the old covenant age and the new covenant age. 
There's the old system, and now there's the new system. In the old system, there was ceremonial laws, there was judicial laws, there was moral laws. Now in the new system, Christ has fulfilled all three, but rather writing the moral law on our hearts in order to, that we've been free to live those out. There's no longer, like the old system, a series of priests that continually do their job in the temple. There's no longer a temple that we go to to gather to worship, but rather Jesus has become the high priest that is greater than all the others who have ever come. He is the temple. His blood was sufficient. And now there's no longer any sacrifices to be offered for sin because Christ's blood was enough. We are in the new covenant. We are in the new system. We are in the new age. Uh, some, such as B.B. Warfield and others, would even argue that we are in, as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the, the new world. You would say, what are you talking about? Well, when you are born again, what does God say happened to you? You become a new what? A new creature, new creation. All things, behold, all, all, the old has what? Passed away, and now all things become what? New. And what Jesus Christ has done is ushered in a new age. He has dethroned the ruler of the old age. Jesus Christ, in the, in the powerful work of the cross, has defeated Satan. On the cross, Satan has been bound. Satan has been dethroned. Satan has been thrown down. Satan has been bound in order for the Lord Jesus to begin to plunder the strong man's house. This is what the promise was long awaited for, is for the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And Jesus Christ did that. You know, a lot of, and I, I know you, you, you may say, well, I, it don't look like he's chained up or anything right now. It doesn't look like he's bound right now. Well, brothers and sisters, I assure you, if you look back to the time in which Paul wrote this, can you imagine if one of them knew right now how far the gospel has gone? It went from Jerusalem to Samaria to Judea to where? The uttermost parts of the earth. And it's still going. Still going. The difference is based on the covenant. And Jesus says here very clearly, now is the judgment of this world. I believe what Jesus is implying there is that his death on the cross is bringing the judgment on the old system. The old system is crumbling. What happened while he was on the cross and after he cried to Telestai, it is finished. The veil was torn from bottom to top. What a Savior. And I hope today you will be able to say that you know Him, that you are found in Him. He said in verse 32, And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself. Now has every person that has ever lived been saved and, saved and went to heaven? I'm sorry, I need to rephrase that. That was almost a trick question, wasn't it? Has every person who has ever lived died and went to heaven? No. 
Only those who have what? Accepted Christ, believed in Christ as their Savior. So when Jesus says, I will be lifted up and draw all people to myself, we're not talking universal atonement here. What we're talking is, is that when Jesus is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself, meaning what the text just told us. What did the text tell us? It says some Greeks came along. We talked about it this morning. They said, sirs, we want to see Jesus. And what did the Pharisees say? Look, the whole world's gone after him. What Jesus is implying here is that at his death, being lifted up on the cross, he's not just drawing those who are in the Jewish community to him, but the invitation has been now extended to Gentiles as well. To those who are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, as Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, we now are no longer strangers and exiles of the covenant, but have been brought into the covenant. And Jesus in his death has made both people or both groups into one new body under one father, one Lord, one baptism, one savior, and one God who is in all and above all. That's what has occurred. And we see that in the scripture. And he will draw them. You know what's unique about verse 31 is where it says, and I will be lift. I'm sorry, verse 32, and I will be lifted up. It's the same wording used in Isaiah 53. Where he says the servant will be lifted up. And he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. <clears throat> I was thinking about a few verses from Isaiah. Isaiah 53, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Listen at these next two. Isaiah 5 verse 26. He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily, they come. Boy, that's power, isn't it? Just whistle. Whistle. Aren't you glad you heard the whistle? I thought about Isaiah chapter 11, verses 10 through 11. It says, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. What did he just say in verse 5? He was going to lift up a signal. Now in Isaiah 11, he says, the root from Jesse will be the signal for all people. That's Christ. Of him shall the nations inquire. The nations inquire. What are you talking about? We just read to you that Greeks came and inquired, Sirs, we want to see Jesus. And his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. From Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea, he will gather his remnant. From every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. I believe Brother Rusty served abroad and preaching and teaching as a missionary. And you know, as you think about that, I think about all those verses in the Psalms. One after another, what does it say? Let the nations be glad. Because through the Son of God, we have been bid to come home. I don't want to go no further because we're going to get into what Isaiah saw, which I think is just awesome. But I won't 
just to land the plane tonight with these verses, and I want to share this last statement. There is no access to God apart from the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no access to God except only through Jesus' death can be sin atoned for and forgiveness granted. Had it not been for the King who came to die, none of us would know what it is to live. May we rejoice that our King has come to die so that His servants may have life and have it more abundantly. Let's pray.